0: Chapter Sixteen Part One of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great. Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great. Volume Two. By John Bucknell Bury. CHAPTER Sixteen, PART One. THE RISE OF MACEDONIA After the Battle of Mantinea, when Thebes retired from her aggressive policy, Athens stood first, the most important state in old Greece. She would have been free to devote all her energies to re-establishing her power on the coasts of the northern Aegean and by the gates of the Pontic waters, and would doubtless have successfully achieved this main object of her policy, if two outlying powers had not suddenly stepped upon the scene to thwart her and cut short her empire. These powers, Caria and Macedon, lay in opposite quarters of the Greek world. Both were monarchies, both were semi-Hellenic. Macedon was a land power, Caria was both a land power and a sea power, but it was as a sea-power that she was formidable to Athens. Of the two it was Caria, which seemed to Greece, the country of the future, and to Athens, the dangerous rival. Of Macedonia little account was taken by the civilized world, and Athens expected that she could always manage it. No prophet in his happiest hour of clairvoyance would have predicted that within thirty years Caria would have sunk back into insignificance, leaving nothing to posterity save the sepulchre of her prince, while Macedon would bear the arts and wisdom of Hellas to the ends of the earth. Section I Athens regains the Kersonis and Euboea. The death of Epaminondas delivered Athens from her most dangerous and active enemy but the intrigues which he had spun against her in the north bore results after his death. Alexander of pherae who had become the ally of the Thebans, seized the island of Peparetus with his pirate ships, and defeated an Athenian armament under Leosthenes. He then repeated the daring enterprise of the Spartan Telotius, sailing rapidly into the Piraeus, plundering the shops, and disappearing as rapidly with ample spoil. The Athenians replied by making a close defensive and offensive alliance with the federal state of the Thessalians. The stone of the treaty is preserved. The allies of both parties are included. The Thessalians bind themselves, not to conclude the war against Alexander, without the Athenians, and the Athenians in likewise, without the president, Aachen, and League of the Thessalians. And the treasurers of Athens are directed to pull down the stele, on which the former alliance with Alexander had been inscribed. But the Athenians went at their indignation within their own walls. Since the capture of Oropus, there had been signs of smouldering discontent at the conduct of affairs. Callistratus had been indicted and acquitted in the matter of Oropus, but his credit had been roughly shaken, and Alexander's insult to the city at her very doors excited the popular wrath to such a pitch that the statesman, as well as the defeated admiral, was condemned to death, and escaped only by a timely flight. Thus the ablest Athenian statesman of the fourth century passed from the stage, and no sympathy followed him. Some years later he ventured to return from his Macedonian exile, hoping that the wrath of his countrymen "'would have passed away. "'The wrath had passed, "'but it had not been replaced by regret. "'On reaching Athens, "'he sought the refuge of suppliants "'at the altar of the twelve gods. "'But no voice was raised to save him, "'and the executioner carried out "'the doom of the people. "'The Athenians were always austere masters "'of their statesmen, "'and it sometimes appears to us, "'though in truth we seldom have sufficient knowledge "'of the circumstances,' to justify a confident judgment, that they unreasonably expected, and in gathering where no seed had been sown. The public indignation, which had been aroused by the daring stroke of the tyrant of Ferrae, was enhanced by the bad tidings which came from Thrace. King Cotis, the reviver of the odrysian power, had succeeded in laying hold of Sestos, and almost the whole peninsula, which guards the entrance to the Propontis, in spite of the Athenian fleet. Soon afterwards the old king was murdered, and his realm was divided among his three sons. This change was advantageous to Athens, as she could play off one Thracian prince against another. The territory on the Propontis fell to Carthobleptes, who was supported by the Oeboean Caridemos, a mercenary captain, who had frequently been employed in the service of Athens, and had married like Iphicrates, a daughter of the Thracian king. Carthobleptis engaged to hand over to Athens the entire Chersonese except Cardia, the enemy of Athens, which was to remain independent. But there was no fleet on the spot to enforce the immediate fulfillment of the promise. And, when an admiral was presently sent out, he was defeated by Charidemus At length a capable man was sent, Charis a daring, dissolute and experienced son of Ares, who speedily captured Sestos and punished the inhabitants for their unfaithfulness by an unmerciful slaughter. Carthobleptis was forced to change his attitude, and the peninsula was recovered. The Athenians, adopting the same policy which they had followed in Samos, sent out settlers to the Chersonese. In the same year Euboea was won back to the Athenian League and there even seemed a fair prospect of accomplishing what of all things would have rejoiced the most the recovery of long lost Amphipolis. But their new scheme against Amphipolis may be said to open, in a certain way, a new chapter in a history of Greece. Section two Philip the Second of Macedonia. The man for whom Macedonia had waited long came at last. We have met once and again, in the course of our history, kings of that ambiguous country, Hellenic and yet not Hellenic, Alexander playing a double part at Plataea, Perdiccas playing, with consummate skill, a double part in the war of Sparta and Athens. But now the hour of Macedonia had come, and we must look more closely at the cradle of the power, which was destined to change, the face, not only of the Greek, but of the Oriental world. In their fortress of Aegea, the Macedonian kings had ruled for ages, with absolute sway, over the lands on the northern and northwestern coasts of the Termaic Gulf, which formed Macedonia in the strictest sense. The Macedonian people and their kings were of Greek stock, as their traditions and the scanty remains of their language combined to testify. They were a military people, and they extended their power westward and northward, over the peoples of the hills, so that Macedonia, in a wider sense, reached to the borders of the Illyrians in the west and of the Piononians in the north. These hill tribes, the Orestians, Lunkestians, and others, belonged to the Illyrian race, and they were ever seeking to cast off the bond of subjection which attached them to the kings of Aegea. In Illyria and Pionia they had allies, who were generally ready to support them in rebellion, and the dangers which Macedonia had constantly to encounter, and always to dread, from half-subjugated vassals and warlike enemies, had effectually hindered her hitherto from playing any conspicuous part in the Greek world. Thus the Macedonian kingdom consisted of two heterogeneous parts, and the Macedonian kings had two different characters. Over the Greek Macedonians of the coast the king ruled immediately. They were his own people, his own companions. Over the Illyric folks of the hills he was only overlord. They were each subject to its own chieftain, and the chieftains were his unruly vassals. It is clear that Macedonia could never become a great power, until these vassal peoples had been completely tamed and brought under the direct rule of the kings, and until the Illyrian and Paeonian neighbors had been taught a severe lesson. These were the tasks which awaited the man who should make Macedonia. The kings had made some efforts to introduce Greek civilization into their land. Archelaus, who succeeded Perdiccas, had been a builder and a roadmaker, and following the example of Greek tyrants, he had succeeded in making his court at Pella, a centre for famous artists and poets. Euripides, the tragic poet, Timotheus, the most eminent leader of a new school of music, Zoexis, the painter, and many another, may have found pleasure and relief, in a change, from the highly civilised cities of the South, to a new and fresher atmosphere, where there were no politicians. It is sometimes said that Macedonia was still in the Homeric stage of development. There is truth in this, but the position of the monarch was different from that of the Homeric king. No law bound the Macedonian monarch, his will was binding on his subjects, and against him they had only one solitary right. In the case of a capital charge, the king could not put a Macedonian to death without the authority of a general assembly. This was the charter of Macedonian liberty. Fighting and hunting were the chief occupations of this vigorous people. A Macedonian, who had not killed his men, wore a cord round his waist, and until he had slain a wild boar, he could not sit at table with the men. Like citrations, the they drank deep. Bacchic mysteries had been introduced. It was in Macedonian air, on the banks of Lake Ludias, that Euripides drew inspiration for his Bacchae. We have seen how Perdiccas slew his guardian and stepfather Ptolemy, and reigned alone. Six years later, the Illyrians swooped down upon Macedonia, and the king was slain in battle. It was a critical moment for the kingdom; the land was surrounded by enemies, for the Paeonians at the same time menaced it in the north and from the east a Tracian army was advancing to set a pretender on the throne. The rightful heir, Amyntas, the son of the slain king, was a child. But there was one man in the land who was equal to the situation, the child's uncle, Philip, and he took the government and the guardianship of the boy into his own hands. We have already met Philip as one of the hostages who were carried off to the Thebes. He had lived there for a few years, and drank in the military and political wisdom of Epaminondas and Pelopidas. We know not why he was allowed to return to his home, soon after the death of Ptolemy. Perhaps it was thought that his affections had been firmly won by Thebes, and that he would be more useful to her in Macedonia. Philip was twenty-four years old when he was called upon to rescue his country— and the dynasty of his own house. The danger consisted in the number of his enemies, foreign invaders and domestic pretenders, and pretenders supported by foreign powers. Philip's first step was to buy off the Pianonians by a large sum of money, his next to get rid of the pretenders. One of these, Argaeus, was assisted by Athens with a strong fleet. Philip defeated him, and did all in his power to come to terms with Athens. He released without ransom the Athenians, whom he had made prisoners in the battle, and he renounced all claim to the possession of Amphipolis, which his brother, King Perdiccas, had occupied with a garrison. Gold easily induced the Thracians to desert the pretender, whom they had come forth to support. But the Paenonians were quieted only for the moment, and the Illyrians were still in the land, besetting Macedonian towns. It was necessary to deal with these enemies once for all, and to assert decisively the military power of Macedon. Philip had new ideas on the art of war, and he spent the winter in remodeling and training his army. When the spring-tide came round, he had ten thousand foot-soldiers and six hundred horsemen, thoroughly disciplined and of great physical strength. With this force he marched against the Pianonians, and quelled them in a single battle. He then turned against the Illyrians, who refused to evacuate the towns they held in the Lincostean territory. A great battle was fought, in which Philip tested his new military ideas. The Illyrians left seven thousand on the field, and the vassals of the highlands, who had supported the invaders, were reduced to abject submission." When he had thus established his power over his dependencies, and cleared the land of foes, Philip lost little time in pushing eastward, on the side of Thrace. The motive for this rapid advance was the imperative necessity of obtaining gold. Without gold Philip could not develop his country, or carry out his military schemes. The Macedonians were not a commercial folk, and therefore his prospects depended on possessing land, which produced the precious ore. In Mount Pangaeus, on his eastern frontier, there were rich sources of gold, and incited by him a number of people from the opposite island of thasos where the art of mining was well understood, had crossed over to Crenides on that mountain, and formed a settlement. But in order to control the new mines it was indispensable, to become master of the great fortress on the Stremon, the much-coveted Amphipolis. The interests of Philip thus came into direct collision with the interests of Athens. Here Philip revealed his skill in diplomacy. When he released the Athenian prisoners, he professed to resign all claim to Amphipolis, and on this basis negotiated a peace with Athens. When the treaty was concluded, a secret article was agreed upon, by which Philip undertook a conquer Amphipolis for Athens, and Athens undertook to surrender to him the free town of Pydna. It is probable that this secret engagement was not made until Philip had actually attacked Amphipolis, and the Amphipolitans, preferring Athens to Macedon, had sent a request for Athenian succour. The moment was inconvenient as the forces of Athens could not be spared from the Chersonese, and the Athenians, failing to grasp the situation, trusted the promises of Philip. Of course, Philip deceived them, and they deserve no sympathy, for their own part of the agreement was a shameful act of treachery to Pydna, their ally. Their orators might cry out against the perfidy of the Macedonian, but the truth is— "'that they sought to make Philip a tool of their own designs, "'and he showed them that in diplomacy "'he was not their dupe but their master. "'When Philip had taken Amphipolis, "'he converted the Thasian settlement of Cranides "'into a great fortress, "'which he called after his own name Philippi. "'He had thus two strong stations to secure Mount Pangaeus, "'and the yield of the gold-mines, "'which were soon actively worked,' amounted to at least one thousand talents a year. No Greek state was so rich. The old capital Aegea or Edessa was now definitely abandoned, and the seat of government was established at Pella, the favorite residence of Archelaus. This coming down from Aegea to Pella is significant of the opening of a new epoch in Macedonian history. Not long afterwards Philip captured Pydna, If the seizure of Amphipolis was an injury to Athens, the capture of Pydna was an insult. He then took Potidaea, but instead of keeping it for himself, handed it over to the Olynthians, to whom he also ceded Anthemus. The Olynthians, alarmed by his operations on the Strimon, had made proposals to Athens for common action against Macedon. The Athenians, trusting Philip, had rejected the overtures. But when they found that they had been duped, they would have been ready and glad to cooperate with Olunthus, and it was to prevent such a combination that Philip dexterously propitiated the Olinthians, intending to devour them on some future day. With the exception of Methone, the Athenians had no foothold now on the coast of the Termaic Gulf. They formed alliances with the Thracians of the west who were indignant at the Macedonian occupation of crenides and with the Paeonian and Illyrian kings, who were smarting under their recent discomfitures. But Philip prevented the common action of the allies. He forced the Paeonians to become his vassals. His ablest general, his only general, he used to say himself, Parmenion, inflicted another overwhelming defeat of the Illyrians, and the Thracians, again bought off, renounced their rights to Mount Pangaius. But the success cost Philip little. Having established his mining town, he assumed the royal title, setting his nephew aside, and devoted himself during the next few years to the consolidation of his kingdom and the creation of a national army. It was in these years that he made Macedonia. His task, as has been already indicated, was to unite the hill-tribes, along with his own Macedonians of the coast, into one nation. The means by which he accomplished this was military organization. He made the highlanders into professional soldiers, and kept them always under arms. Caught by the infection of the military spirit, seduced by the motives of emulation and ambition, they were to forget that they were Orestians or Lincestians and blend into a single homogeneous Macedonian people. To complete this consummation would be a work of years, but Philip conceived the project clearly and set about it at once. A professional army with a national spirit, that was the new idea. Both infantry and cavalry were indeed organized in territorial regiments. Perhaps Philip could not have ventured at first on any other system but common pride and common desire of promotion, common hope of victory, tended to obliterate these distinctions, and they were done away with under Philip's son. The heavy cavalry were called companions of the king and royal soldiers, and they were more honourable than the infantry. Among the infantry there was one body of royal guards, the silver-shielded Hippas Pistae. The famous Macedonian phalanx which Philip drilled, was merely a modified form of the usual battle-line of Greek spearmen. The men in the phalanx stood freer, in a more open array, and used a longer spear, so that the whole line, though still cumbrous enough, was more easily wielded, and the effect was produced not merely by the sheer pressure of a heavy mass of men, but by the skilful manipulation of weapons. Nor was the phalanx intended to decide a battle like the deep columns of Epaminondas, Its function was to keep the front of the foe in play, while the cavalry, in wedge-like squadrons, rode into the flanks. It was by these tactics that Philip had won his victory over the Illyrians. But Greece paid little heed to the things which Philip was doing. The Athenians might indeed encourage his Illyrian and Pannonian enemies, and urge the Stracians to drive him from Mount Pangaeus. But though he had outwitted them, they could not yet see that he was an enemy of a different stamp from a Cotis or a Having managed Macedonia for a hundred years, they had little fear that as soon as they had the time to spare they would easily manage it again. When Philip married Olympus, the daughter of an Epirot prince, the event could cause no sensation. The birth of a son a year later stirred no man's heart in Greece, for who, in his wildest dreams, could have foreseen in the Macedonian infant the greatest conqueror who had yet been born into the world? If it had been revealed to man in that autumn that a power had started up which was to guide history into new paths, they would have turned their eyes not to Pella, but to Halicarnassus. End of chapter 16, part 1